What will life look like in 2035? Um, Much better than it is now. I will have my doctorate. Hopefully I have a good job. We'd like to be at peace in the whole world by 2035. Probably won't be like the Jetsons, but it'd be cool. I have no idea because technology keeps changing. I can't even predict the future. That's what we're trying to figure out. In the third and final episode of our three-part Life in 2035 series, I will speak with two people who have different backgrounds. Amy Zalman of Strategic Narratives is a world-renowned futurist and used to be the president and CEO of the World Future Society. John Hudson is a senior reporter at Foreign Policy Magazine, where he covers U.S. foreign policy, ranging from the State Department, the Pentagon, to industry, and beyond. They will both discuss how the future will change depending on America's actions and how certain events will occur and shape the global context, no matter what America does. So, Amy, Matt Burroughs, who, who wrote this report, um, has five different alternative futures about where he believes the world is headed. Uh, for those who haven't read it, the one he believes is most likely is called Fragmented World. Essentially, there were different power centers. Uh, the world is not working as closely together as, as, it, as it was predicted with a more globalized society. Uh, do you agree with that assessment? And if not, do you have a sort of different vision of where the world might be headed, and, if, remember, and especially in that 2035 time frame? The fragmented world scenario that Matt puts forward, I think, is very accurate almost for right now. The ways that he play it out have to do with uh, the degradation or the non-accession of um, trade, uh, potential trade pacts between the United States and Europe and right uh, China, uh, elsewhere, um, and uh, Brexit falling out in a particular way. So I would say that that scenario is one that we are very close to actually right now. It is not much of a stretch to see it. However, I would also note that the title of the scenario, fragmentation, is one that has a worldview attached to it. It is fragmented from the point of view of the United States and Europe. It is fragmented from the point of view of a particular order. So it doesn't mean that um, if you were to take other viewpoints, the world is in fact fragmented or that globalization is unfolding in a way that is contrary to expectations. Um, we can maybe talk about globalization a little bit further down the line. With respect to the other scenarios that Matt puts forth, I find um, in the longer-term vision, this sub, uh, what he calls urban oasis, uh, sub-national governance uh, becomes deeply important. The trends are sort of very much visible um, with respect to megacities and um, tr- actually supranational, subnational, individual, multi-actor governance falling into place, um, not neatly, but um, with some certainty. So that, for me, is, uh, is coming into being. Um, and, and our job is to, to, to garden it, perhaps, to, to cultivate it, um, because it will unfold. Um, his scenario, the ageless world, one in which life expectancy increases, I find not incompatible with any of his others. So I would say that we uh, we know we'll, we almost know at this point we will see life expectancy increase um, among developed countries and developed populations, um, but we don't actually know what will happen or whether the fallout for that will be entirely in the world of work. That's a murkier place. So John, based on on Amy's discussion right there, she's essentially making the case, or and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, 
that even though the world may be fragmented, that that comes with its own kind of U.S. foreign policy baggage in a sense that the world isn't working the way the United States wants it to work. Uh, the way you kind of, with your reporting and the way you see government function, does that seem right to you? And and also, one thing I thought Amy said, which was very interesting, is in a world where it looks like a lot of subnational entities are going to be doing a lot more governance, is that a world that you see that the United States is planning for? That we are maybe closer to a fragmented world uh, than, than we think. And also that that's also maybe a U.S.-centric way of looking at things, because essentially it reflects uh, a lack of trust in global governance and the global governance system that we currently live in. And, uh, you know, we, sh we shouldn't be surprised that this, there's, there's less respect and less confidence in the system as we live in an increasingly multipolar world. And some of the regional countries uh, that are described in this fragmented world scenario, like Russia and China, who have real problems with the status quo and the existing system, would try to challenge uh, that system and uh, challenge some of the uh, international institutions uh, that undergird uh, that system, which they feel are increasingly obsolete and don't give them a fair shake in the current setup. So both of you kind of alluded to um, something which I thought was interesting, essentially that this is a U.S. view, it's not going the way the U.S. wants it, and that obviously other countries have a stake in the way they want the world to work. And John mentioned Russia. Uh, and China, and so I guess in essence, you know, what are the futures that both the, the, both those countries or, and Amy, I'll pass this to you, you know, what are the futures that other kind of major powers or other entities want to see, which I guess based on what you both are saying, well, it's probably incompatible with what the U.S. wants to see going down the line. China very clearly wants to be, is a world power. I think there's no question about that, nor do I think it's, um, and I don't think it's incompatible necessarily with the United States. That rests on a set of choices that both countries make in the coming years. Um, Russia's aims, I will leave to uh, John to, to uh, make sense of. There is an interesting point in the report that you're issuing um, made about the fact that a lot of developing countries are quite um, excited about, optimistic about, if not the future, then the capacity of foresight and strategic foresight to help them make sense of it. And I think that that shouldn't be ignored. Brazil, South America, uh, North Africa, parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, the world is not parts of the Middle East, is not just kind of a world of you know crises and wars. Um, but of, uh, as the report also points out, on um, people in nations that continue to develop, where some middle classes are growing, where the ability of new technologies and sort of smaller and smaller technologies make certain kinds of capabilities, markets, um, education more possible. And so um, this is perhaps sounds fanciful, but um, it's also worth not ignoring um, what countries and what populations besides those of China, Russia, the United States, and EU as a bloc are doing, perhaps. So in true think tank style, we are discussing something quite, you know, out there and that's not necessarily in the general discussion. Uh, and we're finding that with the presidential campaigns. The campaigns are quite focused in on their own foreign policy, you know, mini doctrines or their, the issues of the day. Uh, so, John, you know, how... 
not how do we get these in the things into conversations, but when one of these campaigns gets in, into into the White House, they're going to have to deal with these issues whether they've talked about it or not. Do, is anything they've said giving you any confidence that they're going to deal with sort of these higher uh, brow, so to speak, strategic issues and, and issues of, of global governance? Yeah, it's funny. There hasn't been a big focus on uh, dealing with issues that are on the horizon uh, throughout the campaign. A lot of it has been sort of a, a grievance-based campaign, uh, uh, both for Donald Trump and, and Hillary Clinton. Um, you know, how do we claw back jobs into the United States? Um, how do we improve uh, workers' rights? Obviously, the entire premise of the Donald Trump campaign is make America great again, which is hearkening some, to something in the past. Uh, Hillary has obviously tried to contrast herself with someone who's focusing towards the future and who's more optimistic and upbeat. Uh, but some of the uh, undercurrents of the uh, political left also focused on more sort of protectionism, uh, suspicion of trade and things like that. So that's like brought her back. I do remember that in the Republican primary, uh, Rubio was sort of uh, the one trying to forecast uh, like why we should be optimistic about living in the United States. And he had a few lines that he would repeatedly use on a campaign trail that were just kind of confusing, but probably directed this. He would talk about how, you know, Amazon is a big company in the United States and uh, it doesn't have infrastructure everywhere, but it has immense you know, wealth and like we need to figure out how to deal with a country like this in a modern technology technological society uh, that has new setups in this way. It, it, it that wasn't a part of a broader vision that he was putting forward of how he's going to lead, but maybe it was probably the only example of a sort of forward looking, uh, at least to my mind. Amy, you might disagree. Um, uh, it, you know, in this campaign cycle. Obviously, it's not surprising. These uh, these subjects that we're talking about are somewhat uh, academic, although they will become more real as we you know approach <laughs> and advance as a society. Uh, but they're not something that voters are, are thinking about. You know, I'm going to make the fragmented society choice this November. Like <laughs> no one's saying that. The point you make about Amazon, or maybe it's Rubio's point, I think is a great one. There is a very strange disconnect and between the way in which both campaigns are very focused on work, jobs, the economy, that's clearly the focus of this campaign, and this other discussion, which is mainstream, it's just not part of the campaigns, about aging, employment, technology, shifts in manufacturing, shifts in service economies, the way in which work itself may be structurally changing, um, uh, uh, income, and income inequality for that matter. So all of these issues in varying degrees in four years, in eight years for sure, I believe will come home to roost for a president who is no longer a candidate. Um, I, I think it, it would be very hard to communicate some of these structural issues in a campaign setting, but they will come back to them when they have to start dealing with employment, work, trade, manufacturing, trying to bring those jobs back, et cetera. So I'm going to throw maybe a slight curveball in, in a sentence because I'm piqued by what you both have said. Essentially, maybe to, to quote from, from from a while ago, are we missing that vision thing? You know, is foresight is, is almost inherently a vision thing, um, so to speak. But both campaigns aren't showing any interest in, in sort of doing it other than make America great again and, you know, stronger together forward or, or all these kinds of, you know, uh, progressive lines. You know, how do campaigns or even just political leadership kind of explain 
maybe you can explain is the wrong word. How do how do they are they able to tell a narrative about what's coming and how do they prepare people and, and resilience? Because maybe this moment is less. It's finally you know the American population coming back and saying we're tired of elites telling us what to do and what's important. Maybe this is a time where we come back and and say so. And in a sense, this may be one of those times that the, as well where it's where elites need to say, well, here's what's coming. You got to get ready. How do you sort of reconcile the two? I mean, I think you can find moments uh, as a leader the way, where you can uh, show leadership by forecasting and uh, explaining to uh, societies, you know, how things are going to work in the future. But, you know, we have a very rigorous marketplace of ideas in our election system. And the candidates who liked to uh, rest on uh, broader ideas of how the country should run or our, our values uh, lost. They lost badly in the Republican primary. And ones that tried to focus very much on sort of primordial interests and uh, you know their you know individual notions of, of of sort of justice and right and wrong in their day to day lives that were like very palpable and very understandable. Uh, those are the candidates that that won. So it, it, in my mind, we know uh, what happens when you try to um, uh, have a platform that's more a- ambiguous and maybe it, 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 you know and maybe I'm being unfair to the notion of. Uh, you know, forecasting uh, how our, our world uh, should work in a campaign setting. I just don't think it works, and I think that the primary sort of bore that out. But ma- I don't know. Maybe you disagree. What I think is that there is no lack of vision, sort of in America. There's great, great ingredients. You know, we can always pull something up, but neither campaign is paying attention right now. And maybe you're right that it just can't be addressed to. Um, what did come up after 2001, which is that when conditions change, it's time to renew your vision and to fill it again with new conditions. So what happened after, so the two campaigns this year are either America's always been great and we're really great and we're great, or we were great and now we're not great anymore, but we're going to be great again. So we are kind of in a very binary way focused apparently on whether we're great or not. I would say let's take our greatness for granted and talk about ways in which when times change, you have to um, renew your vision to fit conditions. We're not living in Cold War conditions. After 2001, presidents told us that we were living in new conditions and we became hyper-focused on security. And those were the new conditions, but that's not, that's exhausting after 15 years and it's not even true. So what about new conditions which present new challenges, new constraints, but also an amazing world of new opportunities and renewing the vision that you know our statesmen and stateswomen have always kind of been able to present to us in um, terms of those changing conditions. It's a tall order for a leader, but I, I think it's, it is actually, there's, it, it's plausible. Do you think that part of that would be giving a more um, accurate depiction of what our security threat situation is right now? Do you think that's a, a leader's role? It sounded like, um, and maybe I'm extrapolating too much, that you we were referring to the point that we do sort of live in an age of fear when it comes to whether it's a terrorism threat uh, or a threat from a foreign adversary. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have, have looked into, uh, you know, statistics about, uh, you know, deaths and deaths due to great power conflict, and they've actually, you know, gone down. Um, and it does seem like President Obama 
uh, understands this more than many leaders. And it's also one of the things he's been criticized at the most. Uh, you know, this has been, and maybe it's the media's fault because a lot of the questions he gets are, you know, it doesn't seem like you're taking this terrorist threat serious and seriously enough. Uh, why can't we get these bastards was an exact quote from uh, uh, a, a cable TV um, reporter during a press conference, uh, which which sort of uh, immortalized the moment of the media um, being quite frightened by what it sees as an increasing series of terrorist attacks, specifically from the Islamic State. And then uh, a president who seems who has always been uh, had a cool persona uh, and a sort of, you know, no drama Obama uh, aesthetic. But, at, you know, in this stage, actually, um, there's there's an exposed fissure in that regard. Do you think that that's helpful? And do you, what what should someone do? Because with President Obama, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's worked that well. That's a good point. Um, I mean, to the point of fear, right? A group of uh, people in L.A. airport the other day got very, very frightened because of a, a noise. I guess um, is you can is that the story? I, I didn't. I didn't see that. But. Okay. All right. So, the, so there was a scare. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm an admirer of the coolness. It hasn't worked because um, uh, the president is only one of many players in the national, you know, in the national security and foreign policy um, and domestic policy environment. So um, I would say that other actors in that environment who are also powerful um, have not let, have actually gotten stuck on, are we being under or over concerned with security? But security remains the fulcrum of our national discussion. So I would say just, we haven't left it. I happen to be, and I happen to think that it is correct that we, downplay from our which we have as a nation we don't have color alerts anymore it's not like it was 10 years ago but nor do we focus on like resilience and violence in exactly the way that we could the attacks that we've had here in california and san bernardino and in florida those are um those are not exactly the attacks of a foreign terrorist group landing on our soil and getting through our airport or our you know or our shipping and planting a dirty bomb here. Those are the uh, uh, unique um, product of the information age, I believe, and this sort of concoction that unfolds uh, that has to do, yes, with um, ISIL or with foreign um, actors and their efforts, but also has to do with the conditions and situations of people here. So I think building resilience, we should go back to those kinds of things and think about security um, in a broader perspective that has partly to do with keeping your body safe from attack, but other kinds of resilience, and put it in a, in a, in a broader, um, in broader focus, if that's an answer. So even with all these things that we've discussed, the next, you know, and even if the, the next president has all these foresight things in mind, at the end of the day, the crises of today that are going to carry over will dominate the day to day in the White House and other and other departments. And of course, and as it always happens, some other thing will pop up and, and, and carry over. How do you kind of keep the the, the the sort of that global tr- risks focus that foresight focus in mind while dealing with the day-to-day and and what do you think is actually going to end up kind of what is the next administration going to end up caring about the most if that's a way to put it 
I don't know whether or not as uh, I don't I don't even know whether or not the bully pulpit is the best place to do that kind of thing. I, I think long-term planning in many cases is always going to be an elite exercise, and it's made for backroom discussions in Congress. Uh, you know, ultimately, it can't stray too far from. Uh, you know, the needs and the di desires of everyday people, because that's obviously who lawmakers are, uh, uh, you, know, you know, they have to respond to and react to and beholden to. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, uh, to be honest. You've probably thought about it more than I have. I don't know about that, but, but I would disagree that uh, long-term planning is an elite activity. The, the the short answer to your question about strategic foresight institutionalized planning activities is build them into our institutions. Other governments do. Finland does. They do long-term technology planning down to the nothing, you know, nth degree. Singapore does. Scotland does. Other countries do. We are different. We are not Singapore. We have a huge complex government. We cannot there's a lot of randomness and complexity in our own system. Nevertheless, it is not implausible at all that decision-making today be more infused with a, with a picture of the long-term. And, and it's absolutely necessary. What about education? What are we going to educate people for that are five years old now? For their, is it a job in 20 years? Is it their automatic income and gardening activities? What, what is it? What are we going to do as a as a as a country as a as a the guider of markets about um, climate change besides prepare for bigger storms in the mid Atlantic area? So so long term questions are always on the horizon even in the present and there's really no reason not to do the best possible thing for the country and its population and build that thinking into current decision making and make it a value. I'll do my own editorializing here for a little bit. You know, I'm thinking about maybe what Matt might not have covered in his little menu. And for those who read the report, uh, you know, the last section has, again, these five outlines. The one I think that isn't really covered and that I've been thinking a lot about lately is sort of a rise in a global popular backlash. Uh, we're seeing that here. We're seeing that really in Europe. We're seeing that somewhat around the world. And it used to be that sort of the high-minded, best strategic planning you could do or was considered was balance of power issues, global affairs issues. And now I think it may go down to, to paraphrase what Louis C.K. likes to say, is the essence of life is how do I put food in my mouth? Um, and when, when, I, when you hear people talk about what's going on in the U.S. or what people's concerns are, it always seems to end up around there. It's my job's being taken away or, you know, I, I, the economy's not working for me. I can't get what I want. I have, you know, I have my master's degrees or I have whatever degrees I, and I'm still not getting what I was somewhat promised. And so how does it, well, I guess question one is, do elites or government planners really have a role in helping at that sort of micro level of how do I put food in my mouth? Or is that just kind of still going to be a byproduct of all these high-level thinking and strategic planning? I think, I mean, part of the, the challenge is that we just have, you know, it's always going to be the problem of 
free trade arguments that their benefits are diffuse and the pain is very closely felt by the people you know who lost their job so communicating that is difficult so difficult the fact that no one is making that argument now not the democratic candidate and not the republican candidate uh you know president obama still supports uh, you know, the TPP, which is, you know, obviously the current iteration of uh, what free traders are, are pushing for right now. Uh, but but he's alone right now. And th- there's a lot of, you know, questions and uncertainty about whether that's going to be uh, even a reality in the, the lame duck right now. Um, so I think it probably will for those who support free trade, for those who believe uh, that uh, it it actually makes people better off uh, that, you know, it's hard to tell you, hey, when you're going to Walmart, like all of these things would be, you know, a little bit more expensive. Uh, but, you know, it, it creates efficiencies in the, in society, uh, you know, theoretically, and it makes us, you know, better off to face the future. Um, and that's a difficult argument uh, to make, but uh, it probably is something that our leaders should be responsible uh, for for taking up, even though it's not really the popular argument right now. My thoughts went in a slightly different direction from yours. Then they're not unrelated. Um, where this vision of a potential sort of global popular populist backlash intersects to me is has to do with. Um, I'll call it income inequality, but just greater relative inequality. Um, so, um, John, you cover really well sort of what the situation is for us, for Europe. Then there's another three billion people or so don't who are you know our notion of their rising um, income is going from two dollars to three fifty a day or something. So there's that world which is not insignificant, and then there's this small. Um, cadre of the super, super, super wealthy and even the not that wealthy, like, you know, Trump gaining access to um, what are considered kind of professional realms. Um, we have good players in that in that space, too, like Gates. I mean, we we like what he does. Um, and I don't know who that we is, but so it's not everybody. Um, so there is the possibility to me of of um things that are not very easily predicted but that have to do with um a, a world in which empowerment is is differently distributed and actually access to information and technological empowerment is differently distributed as well because that divide isn't just an in income it's in like access to to broadband and to um to information which is so critical i don't know what it would look like um, and I don't know that it would be global in nature, like we'd all get together and um, be on one side of a divide. But I think there's something that's important for um, American and other leaders to look at country by country. The contrary take would just be that, uh, you know, people are just uh, uh, cogs in the machine. And so don't worry, you don't have to explain anything. They're going to be driven by their material needs uh, and just let the elites take over. I'm not, I'm not proposing this. And maybe that will accelerate the revolution. I have no idea. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information on the Strategy Initiative at the Atlantic Council, check out acstrategy.net and engage with us on social media using hashtag Life in 2035. 
And if you have any videos or ideas you want to submit to us, please do so at lifein2035 at atlanticcouncil.org.